BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, an anticipated Trump indictment, Silicon Valley Bank, and raccoon dogs. What's the truth about them we can use to unite Americans to fix our country? That's what we're going to discuss today here on the Unite Americans podcast. But before we do, please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpakita. That's M-P-U-K-I-T-A. Asset managers BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street are responsible for much of the idiocy we're seeing with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, ESG, environmental, social, and governance scores, and climate hysteria. But worse than that, they're preparing to control every aspect of our lives, colluding with the iron triangle of Congress, bureaucrats, which we know as the deep state, and influence peddlers like lobbyists and activists. We've seen how the Iron Triangle preyed upon grassroots Americans by censoring us on social media. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is now proven fact since the release of the Twitter files by Elon Musk, Twitter's new owner. Imagine an expansion of control over every aspect of our life. Verizon cuts off your mobile phone service because they don't like your politics. And when you go to AT&T or T-Mobile, they won't do business with you because you're on some secret list. This is already happening at some banks. And who says it can't happen at grocery stores, pharmacies, gas stations, and utility companies? All they need is woke enough CEOs and management to make it happen. And even if you're a fair-minded CEO, you could be forced to comply anyway or lose your high-paid position and be unable to find another. You might be blackballed and never work at that level again. It's corporate blackmail and extortion. This is where we're headed because of the control BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street have over almost all the largest corporations. Now, this is going to get a little wonky, maybe, for some, but I want you to stay tuned because at the end of this segment, I'm going to give you some information that will blow your mind and probably make you angry. Let's call it a nugget. Combined, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street control about $22 trillion of our money from IRAs and 401ks. They do it through the mutual funds and ETFs, exchange-traded funds, that they offer as investment products. That's a big number. America's GDP is about $26 trillion. BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street buy stocks and bonds to package into these funds. If you look at a fund's prospectus, you can see what the fund is invested in. Here's the shocking statistic. In late 2020, combined, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard were the largest owner in 88% of the Standard & Poor's, the S&P 500 companies. This from a report by the American Economic Liberties Project. And from the New York Times in May 2022, their combined $22 trillion in managed assets is the equivalent of more than half of the combined value of all shares for companies in the S&P 500. I want to stop here and make an important distinction. Let me repeat the first quote again. In late 2020, combined... BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard were the largest owner in 88% of the S&P 500 companies. 
like the report's author, many people will say that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street own all the biggest companies, which is not technically true. When questioned, the CEOs of BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street will say that they do not own all of the biggest companies in the world. They say they invest trillions of dollars into leading companies on behalf of their clients, who ultimately own the shares. But what they don't tell you is that they vote what they say are your shares at annual meetings of the companies in which they, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, own stock. And they make it sound like they're doing you a big favor. Vanguard says, The most visible sign of Vanguard's engaged ownership is our fund's proxy voting at portfolio company shareholder meetings. Notice they didn't add on behalf of our fund owners. As company owners, BlackRock and Vanguard, along with State Street, can vote on behalf of their clients at company shareholder meetings. I said at the beginning of this segment that these three gargantuan asset managers are responsible for much of the DEI, ESG, and climate change nonsense. It's because they're populated with Ivy League and World Economic Forum types who love to preach this silliness. Their websites are littered with woke statements and woke topics. For example, in March of 2021, Vanguard joined over 70 asset managers aiming to have companies within their portfolios achieve net zero emissions by 2050, a goal that parallels the Paris Agreement. And from BlackRock's BlackRock Investment Stewardship Global Principles document, which is shown as being effective as of January 2023, BlackRock recognizes that climate change can be challenging for many companies as they seek to drive long-term value by mitigating risks and capturing opportunities. A growing number of companies, financial institutions, as well as governments have committed to advancing decarbonization in line with the Paris Agreement. This is the same Paris Agreement many of us were ecstatic President Trump canceled because it was so lopsided against America and American businesses, just like our trade deals. In a CNBC article written by Catherine Clifford in May of 2022, BlackRock's investment stewardship team said they voted in favor of 47% of environmental and social shareholder proposals. That's 81 out of 172 votes. They went on to say they would likely vote to support fewer climate proposals for companies in its investment portfolio in 2022 than it did in 2021. Now, BlackRock's own 2022 voting spotlight, BlackRock Investment Stewardship, a look into the 2021-2022 proxy voting year, showed they voted in favor of 33 of 88 climate proposals. That's over 37%. The timing of the article and the way BlackRock responded is noteworthy. In May, many of the companies in BlackRock's portfolio would either have had their annual meetings or soon would. BlackRock representatives would have known how many proposals were out there to vote on and which they would favor. Probably like many of you, I've realized how many people lie to us constantly, especially in big business, government, academia, and the mainstream media. Maybe BlackRock is feeling pressure from customers who feel their climate activism is folly. 
Maybe they're playing word and number games to make it look like they're backing off their wokeness. By the way, you can find links to all the articles and documents referenced anywhere in the podcast in the show notes. Before I share the nugget I promised you at the beginning of this segment, I want to make you aware that we've only scratched the surface here. The proverbial tip of the iceberg, that is BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. We'll build on this foundation in future episodes. I can't tell you how much there is to unpack. Part of that unpacking, we'll be talking about Larry Fink, BlackRock's CEO and chairman, and the businesses these companies have in China. And I also want to share with you something by Graham Steele of the American Economic Liberties Project, who wrote in November 2020. In late 2018, the late Vanguard founder, Jack Bogle, sounded an alarm about the risk that a handful of giant institutional investors will one day hold voting control of virtually every large U.S. corporation. He said that the impact of this growing dominance on financial markets, corporate governance, and regulation will be major issues in the coming era. Steele goes on to write, the concentration of big three fund companies and accompanying concentration of corporate ownership could continue increasing in the coming years. One study estimates that if the current ownership trend continues, the entire market will be held by index funds by 2030. Another projects that the big three could own 33.4% of S&P 500 equity, and 30.1% of Russell 3000 companies by 2038. They would also control 40.8% of S&P 500 votes and 36.7% of Russell 3000 votes in 2038. Further concentration could only serve to exacerbate these issues of corporate governance, competition, and conflicts of interest. To me, this is borderline terrifying. Now here's the nugget. Vanguard has a board of directors. While reviewing its composition, I noticed a familiar name, Sarah Bloom Raskin. The Vanguard website explains a former governor of the Federal Reserve Board, Sarah Bloom Raskin has served as the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of the Treasury, as a governor of the Federal Reserve Board, and as the Commissioner of Financial Regulation for the State of Maryland. What they conveniently leave out is she's also the wife of Jamie Raskin, a Democrat member of the U.S. House of Representatives representing Maryland's 8th Congressional District since 2017. Jamie Raskin is one of the original election deniers. One of his first actions in Congress in January 2017 was to object to the certification of the 2016 presidential election in favor of Donald Trump due to alleged ties with Russia, proven false, and Russia's interference in the 2016 election, which was proven to be less than $200,000 in Facebook ads per the Mueller report, as well as voter suppression efforts. In Jamie Raskin's own words... What purpose is member right? Uh, I have an objection because 10 of the 29 electoral votes cast by Florida were cast by electors not lawfully certified because they violated Florida's prohibition against dual debate office holding. Debate is out of order. Section 15 and 17 of the Title III of the United States Code require that any objection be presented in writing, signed by both members of the House of Representatives, both a member of the House of Representatives and a senator. 
Is the objection in writing and signed not only by the member of the House of Representatives, but also by a senator? It is in writing, Mr. President. Is it signed by a senator? Not as of yet, Mr. President. Raskin sits on the House Committee on the Judiciary, but more importantly, on its Subcommittee on Antitrust, Commercial, and Administrative Law. This would put him in a position of direct conflict of interest when the House finally decides to start looking at and reining in financial behemoths like BlackRock, Vanguard, where his wife is a director, and State Street. People, they're doing unethical, dishonest, and corrupt things right before our eyes. They know it, and they don't care. This has got to stop. Much more on BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street in future episodes, including more conflicts of interest, their lobbying clout in D.C., and just how woke they really are. There's lots of speculation about President Trump being indicted in New York. I want to break this down because I believe the way this is being presented by mainstream media is a smokescreen. It's a planned process of well-timed and coordinated news stories and articles designed by Democrats and rhino Republicans to focus on a pending New York indictment when what they really want is to drag out talk of investigations and indictments until the presidential election in November of 2024. I see this as just another attempt to keep President Trump from getting back into office by the insiders in the Uniparty, which are most of our elected representatives and senators in D.C. on both sides of the aisle as well as the deep state, big tech, big pharma, Wall Street, and the mainstream media. They truly have Trump derangement syndrome, TDS. He makes them batshit crazy. As we saw with the two fake impeachments and the fraudulent J6 committee hearings, they will do anything to keep him from being president again. They have and will sell their souls to do it. It's because they fear him. They know that he knows that they know that he knows everything about their corruption, dishonesty, and criminality. They are backed into a corner, and they are desperate. They will do anything to keep him from office. The charges they are seeking to lay on him are cumbersome and unique. Here's a pretty good explanation from the New York Times. Alvin L. Bragg, the district attorney, is focused on Mr. Trump's involvement in the payment of hush money to a porn star who said she had an affair with him. Michael D. Cohen, Mr. Trump's fixer at the time, made the payment during the final days of the 2016 presidential campaign. While the facts are dramatic, the case against Mr. Trump would likely hinge on a complex interplay of laws, and a conviction is far from assured. The article goes on. How did this all begin? In October 2016, during the final weeks of the presidential campaign, the porn star Stormy Daniels was trying to sell her story of an affair with Mr. Trump. At first, Ms. Daniels' representatives contacted the National Enquirer to offer exclusive rights to her story. David Pecker, the tabloid's publisher and a longtime ally of Mr. Trump, had agreed to look out for potentially damaging stories about him during the 2016 campaign and at one point even agreed to buy a story of another woman's affair with Mr. Trump and never publish it, a practice known as catch and kill. But Mr. Pecker didn't purchase Miss Daniels' story. 
Instead, he and the tabloid's top editor, Dylan Howard, helped broker a separate deal between Mr. Cohen and Ms. Daniels' lawyer. Mr. Cohen paid $130,000, and Mr. Trump later reimbursed him from the White House. In 2018, Mr. Cohen pleaded guilty to a number of charges, including federal campaign finance crimes involving the hush money. The payment, federal prosecutors concluded, amounted to an improper donation to Mr. Trump's campaign. In the days after Mr. Cohen's guilty plea, the district attorney's office opened its own criminal investigation into the matter. While the federal prosecutors were focused on Mr. Cohen, the district attorney's inquiry would center on Mr. Trump. So what did Mr. Trump possibly do wrong? When pleading guilty in federal court, Mr. Cohen pointed the finger at his boss. It was Mr. Trump, he said, who directed him to pay off Ms. Daniels, a contention that prosecutors later corroborated. The prosecutors also raised questions about Mr. Trump's monthly reimbursement checks to Mr. Cohen. They said in court papers that Mr. Trump's company falsely accounted for the monthly payments as legal expenses and that company records cited a retainer agreement with Mr. Cohen. Although Mr. Cohen was a lawyer and became Mr. Trump's personal attorney after he took office, there was no such retainer agreement, and the reimbursement was unrelated to any legal services Mr. Cohen performed. Mr. Cohen said that Mr. Trump knew about the phony retainer agreement, an accusation that could form the basis of the case against the former president. In New York, falsifying business records can amount to a crime, albeit a misdemeanor. To elevate the crime to a felony charge, Mr. Bragg's prosecutors must show that Mr. Trump's intent to defraud included an intent to commit or conceal a second crime. In this case... That second crime could be a violation of New York state election law. While hush money is not inherently illegal, the prosecutors could argue that the $130,000 payout effectively became an improper donation to Mr. Trump's campaign under the theory that it benefited his candidacy because it silenced Ms. Daniels. Will it be a tough case to prove? Even if Mr. Trump is indicted, Convicting him or sending him to prison will be challenging. For one thing, Mr. Trump's lawyers are sure to attack Mr. Cohen's credibility by citing his criminal record. The case against the former president also likely hinges on an untested and therefore risky legal theory involving a complex interplay of laws. Combining the falsifying of business records charge with a violation of state election law would be a novel legal theory for any criminal case, let alone one against the former president, raising the possibility that a judge or appellate court could throw it out or reduce the felony charge to a misdemeanor. And even if the felony charge remains, it amounts to a low-level felony. If Mr. Trump were ultimately convicted, he would face a maximum sentence of four years, though prison time would not be mandatory. This article was published on March 10th. On March 17th, exactly one week later, MSNBC ran an opinion piece written by Jessica Levinson, a professor at the Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Let me play a clip where Levinson is talking about the impeachment of President Trump. I want you to get a sense of how Democrat and progressive she is. 
In this clip, she's on a panel giving the Democrat perspective. It's a bit long, about two minutes, but I think it adds valuable context. What do you expect from the impeachment hearings that are going to start this week? I mean, look, it's become a circus, and I think Adam Schiff likes it and the Democrats like it, because the longer that they can create this cloud of controversy, stretch this thing out, they keep the president's approval ratings down and the president off message, off his reelection message of other things. So um, it was interesting to hear Schiff's response that despite there being zero path to actually get this confirmed in the Senate, instead of just censuring the president, going on record in the House, he's going to continue to go down this road. It's purely political, and that's the problem. What do you make? What did you make of that? Well, um, this is going to shock you. I totally disagree with what you said. <laughs> so, number one, I actually think this is terrible for Democrats that this is dragging on because then the president can continue to say, why aren't House Democrats doing the work of the American people? Why do they keep this witch hunt going? And I think Democrats know that, and that's why they decided not to go to court for every time mm -hmm. somebody ignores a subpoena. The other thing about, you know, why are we going through this impeachment? Why not just censure, as you said? Because impeachment is in the Constitution. And if we still live in a government that is structured by the Constitution, then that word has got to mean so something. So you're willing to shut down the government, get no progress done on the important things that Democrats ran in on the midterms so that you can put a stamp on the Constitution. I don't think, I don't think we have to shut down the government. I think what you have to do is say, Either we respect that term, and if we see this type of behavior that rises to impeachable offenses, we do it, or that term impeachment becomes meaningless. She's no fan of Donald Trump. In her MSNBC opinion piece, she writes, If New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg indicts Trump on charges related to his hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels, it could threaten every other investigation against him. That's why, for some of Trump's biggest critics— the prospect of an indictment related to the Daniels case leads to little but existential dread. That's not because the facts show Trump engaged in no wrongdoing. Quite the opposite. It is because of all the legal cases Trump faces. This one may be the hardest to prove. She goes on to say, If Trump successfully defends himself against an indictment for his role in the payment to Daniels, we can predict he will use it as vindication that any and all charges brought against him are merely so-called witch hunts. It doesn't take much to imagine Trump's ceaseless gloating about a loss by the New York prosecutors. And this could have a cascade effect, not only emboldening Trump's false claims that he has done nothing wrong, but also making other prosecutors skittish about charging Trump in other cases. Remember, she's a Democrat insider, and operative. What she's saying she's worried about is being able to get anywhere with this, that she wants Trump in jail. She knows that's what every rabid grassroots Democrat voter wants, to kneecap Donald Trump in any way possible to keep him off the ballot in November 2024. She's playing to the Democrat base. She says she's afraid if Bragg's effort to indict and try President Trump fails, President Trump will have even more ammunition to say charges elsewhere are just as specious and abusive as those in New York. I believe there's a hidden agenda here. This is a smokescreen. If Bragg indicts, the Trump legal team could work hard to have this tried and over as quickly as possible. They could also tell every other investigation to step back. They've got a criminal case in New York that has precedence. 
But not indicting him in New York or waiting to indict him there allows the other investigations to go forward uninterrupted. So maybe her writing publicly on MSNBC that this will be hard to prove is actually a cover story for dragging all of these investigations out. Just like they did the two fraud impeachments and the J6 committee. To always have something for our corrupt, dishonest mainstream media to report to the majority of American voters who still go to them for fake news. Liars are known to embellish their stories, their lies, with details honest people simply don't go into. She goes on. Again, Trump should face criminal charges. He must be held accountable for crimes he allegedly committed before, during, and after he was in office. At least four other investigations are pending against him, any of which might offer a smoother legal path to punish him for his behavior. Overwhelming evidence indicates that Trump incited or assisted in an insurrection aimed at obstructing an official proceeding, namely the certification of electoral college votes. A recorded telephone call shows that he tried to commit election fraud in Georgia. The alleged crime spree didn't stop when Trump left office. An FBI search and court documents strongly suggest that he unlawfully took classified documents and kept them at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. She then goes into a lengthy explanation of all the weaknesses in Bragg's case. It's so long, I won't even bore you with reading it here. A link to her complete opinion piece will be in the show notes. Just let me read you her summary. Any indictment of a former president would be historic. In fact, such a criminal indictment would be the first in our nation's history. One thing we know about historic firsts, we view them as test cases for what is possible. If Bragg were to move forward on an indictment and lose his case, it would have a ripple effect, both legally and politically, on future cases against Trump. For the sake of the rule of law, and of legal and political accountability, let's hope Bragg and his office know something we don't know about the strength of his case against the former president. To me, that sounds like a signal to Bragg to not indict and drag his feet. Don't be surprised if there's no indictment of Donald Trump out of New York soon. And that's not necessarily a good thing for the reasons I've outlined. I want to change the subject for a few minutes. So far, I've covered content that was informative and educational. I want to briefly talk philosophy. I've named this podcast The Unite American Show for a reason. We are badly divided as a nation. It comes from dishonest and corrupt politicians using intersectional politics to drive wedges between factions of Americans. It is the most despicable and disgusting thing I've seen in my almost 65 years on this planet. The guilty are members of the Uniparty and are both Democrats and Republicans. They get to D.C. and forget about us. To stay there, they divide us. And once they get there, they're there forever because of this. And they're aided and abetted by a corrupt, dishonest mainstream media, as well as the bureaucracy that we know as the deep state, and corrupt lobbyists and activist groups. And unfortunately... Most American voters still get their information from the liars in the mainstream media. I call these people the unenlightened. We must fix this. The only way I see to do it is to communicate with each other, one-on-one, -on -one, and to tell the truth. You may have noticed the tagline for this show is, Unity without truth is conspiracy. Maybe like you, 
I'm sick of being constantly lied to by the media, by elected officials, by bureaucrats, by academics, by large corporations, seemingly by everyone. I'll cover things in this podcast that I feel everyone needs to know but doesn't because of these liars. I hope you'll share this podcast with people who agree with us philosophically, but more importantly, those who don't. We've got to find a way to reach the people who are unenlightened. The only way we're going to do this is through one-on-one -on -one communication. I'll be talking more about this in future episodes, and I'll be suggesting concrete actions you can take to make this happen, or at least give you the best odds of enlightening more Americans. Now, let's get on to the next segment. Let's talk about the Silicon Valley Bank scam. I already released this segment in a teaser for this premiere, but I want to repeat it for those who may not have listened because it's information unenlightened Americans need to know. You might also find it helpful to pass on to your friends and family. Venture capitalists, what I'll refer to as VCs, manage venture capital funds for wealthy and institutional investors. For massive fees, they also invest their funds in high-growth companies, also referred to as their portfolio companies, in hopes of having those companies scale up rapidly and one day get acquired or go public in an initial public offering, what's commonly called an IPO, and make a killing. I'm talking tens, hundreds, or thousands of times their investments. A bunch of these super-rich billionaire-level venture capitalists told their funds portfolio companies to put their VC-provided cash into Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, because SVB is run by the VC's buddies. So they did. Then the shit hit the fan at SVB. They failed, were shut down, and were taken over by the government. The VC's portfolio companies lost the cash they had on deposit at SVB, or at least some of it, because of SVB's failure. VCs have deep pockets. They're multi-billionaires. They could help their portfolio companies with their own cash to replace the funds lost at SVB. But to them, that would be silly when they can twist Janet Yellen's arm and get her to commit to make them whole. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that we should get stock in every one of those portfolio companies because the money committed by Yellen is ours. But that won't happen, will it? Because we voted ignorant and corrupt clowns into seats in D.C. where they can hire morons like Yellen and give it to us up the caboose again and again and again. Distracting us with lies like Russia collusion, dangerous insurrection in Ukraine. This is just one more financial rape of hardworking grassroots Americans by wealthy financial engineers who produce nothing of value except more and more money for their rich investors and themselves. As George Carlin used to say, it's one big club and we're not in it. It's disgusting and disgraceful. That's the truth. Before we change topics, let me ask you to please subscribe to the Unite Americans show on Rumble or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to give us a like where you can, and please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpakita. That's at M-P-U-K-I-T-A. Now on to our next segment. I never thought I'd be doing a podcast segment about raccoon dogs. But that's how far the people who want to continue to drive the fraudulent, dishonest, criminal COVID narrative will go. 
And what we know about the raccoon dog theory exposes some real scumbags. A March 16th article from The Atlantic titled The Strongest Evidence Yet That an Animal Started the Pandemic by Catherine J. Wu started this latest nonsense. The subtitle of the article says it all. A new analysis of genetic samples from China appears to link the pandemic's origin to raccoon dogs. I won't bore you with the virology mumbo-jumbo and we'll get straight to the meat. Researchers supposedly went back to results of test samples, swabs, taken by Chinese researchers at the start of the pandemic. Wu writes, The genetic sequences were pulled out of swabs taken in and near market stalls around the pandemic's start. They represent the first bits of raw data that researchers outside of China's academic institutions and their direct collaborators have had access to. Late last week, the data were quietly posted by researchers affiliated with the country's Center for Disease Control and Prevention on an open access genomic database called GISAID. By almost pure happenstance, scientists in Europe, North America, and Australia spotted the sequences, downloaded them, and began an analysis. The samples were already known to be positive for the coronavirus and had been scrutinized before by the same group of Chinese researchers who uploaded the data to GISAID. But that prior analysis, related to a preprint publication in February 2022, asserted that no animal host of SARS-CoV-2 can be deduced. Any motes of coronavirus at the market, the study suggested, had most likely been chauffeured in by infected humans rather than wild creatures for sale. In other words, they concluded in 2022 that there was no jump of the virus from animal to human. Wu continues, the new analysis led by Christian Anderson, Edward Holmes, and Michael Wowerby, we'll get back to these names, three prominent researchers who have been looking into the virus's roots, shows that that may not be the case. Within about half a day of downloading the data from GIS AID, the trio and their collaborators discovered that several market samples that tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 were also coming back chock full of animal genetic material, much of which was a match for the common raccoon dog. Because of how the samples were gathered, and because viruses can't persist by themselves in the environment, the scientists think that their findings could indicate the presence of a coronavirus-infected raccoon dog in the spots where the swabs were taken. Unlike many of the points of discussion that have been volleyed about in the origins debate, the genetic data are tangible, Alex Kritz Kristoff, a computational biologist and one of the scientists who worked on the new analysis, told me. And this is the species that everyone has been talking about. So now, after everyone in the world except maybe the researchers knows it was a virus engineered in a lab that somehow made it out of the lab, we're supposed to go back to the wet market story? Even when we also know there's a lab doing research on just these kinds of viruses right around the corner? We're supposed to believe that? Note I was careful to say that maybe the researchers were the only ones believing the theory. But maybe not. 
Maybe they're just trying to take the heat off the Chinese and themselves because they've been participating to some degree in gain-of-function research being done in labs around the world, including China, and it's being done with U.S. taxpayer money. Gain-of-function research is just like it sounds, making viruses more deadly and more transmissible, making new viruses that kill more people faster, a Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab dream. What support do I have for challenging the integrity of these researchers? Christian Anderson was at the middle of a controversy in 2021 over the origin of COVID-19. It was thought by many that he was helping Tony Fauci cover up the lab leak theory because it's now clear Fauci was approving research grants for dangerous gain-of-function research, working through a cutout NGO, non-governmental organization, EcoHealth Alliance, and a guy by the name of Peter Daszak. Daszak's organization is suspected of being the cutout through which Fauci got gain-of-function research grant money, our taxpayer dollars, to China and the Wuhan lab. Here's what Anders Engsley wrote in a June 2021 Newsweek article titled, Scientist who warned Fauci COVID could be engineered deletes Twitter account. A virologist who said during the early phases of the pandemic that some of COVID's features potentially looked engineered in an email to Dr. Anthony Fauci has deleted his Twitter account. Christian G. Anderson of the Scripps Research Institute removed his page on the social media platform following the release of email exchanges between himself and Dr. Fauci. His account was no longer accessible on Sunday, June 6th, according to the Internet Archive, The Wayback Machine. Before Anderson's account was deleted, the virologist faced explosive claims that the email exchange about his changing views on how the virus came into being showed evidence of a cover-up. Days before the account was removed, Anderson responded to Sky News host Sherry Markson's claims that Fauci had been part of a cover-up and said, I know it's super mundane, but it isn't actually a massive cover-up, Sherry. It's just science. Boring. I know, but it's quite a helpful thing to have in times of uncertainty. The spotlight fell on Anderson after the Washington Post and BuzzFeed released an email exchange between the virologist and Dr. Fauci that had been obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. In an email sent to Fauci on January 31, 2020, Anderson said some of the SARS-CoV-2 features potentially looked engineered. I've got links to those emails from the FOIA request in the show notes. Later in the article, Angsley continues, Following the publication of emails by the Washington Post and BuzzFeed, however, questions were raised regarding Anderson's earlier comments in his exchange with Dr. Fauci. Roger Pilke Jr., professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, asked Anderson on Twitter about what he meant by all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. In a reply, Anderson said it specifically means we thought on preliminary look that the virus could have been engineered and or manipulated. Turns out, the data suggest otherwise, which is the conclusion of the paper. And now the same guy is back with the same research partnership saying the virus jumped from a raccoon dog to a human at the wet market. 
Yeah, and Professor Plom used a lead pipe in the library. Another of the named researchers, Michael Warraby, seemed anxious to be the guy who found the source of COVID-19. So much so that he was willing to contradict his own theory that it was leaked from a lab. This from a CBS News article dated November 19th, 2021, titled, U.S. Scientist Says He's Found the Real COVID Patient Zero and Strong Evidence Pandemic Started at Animal Market. The first case of COVID-19 identified in Wuhan, China, and presented as such by the World Health Organization, was actually days later than previously believed and at an animal market, a top scientist said in the journal Science Thursday. Rather than the original patient being a man who had never been to the Wuhan market where wild and domestic animals were sold, the first known case of COVID-19 turns out to have been a woman who had worked in the market, virologist Michael Warraby wrote. The article goes on to say, Another criticism of the theory was based on the fact that the first case identified was unrelated to the market. But while the WHO report claimed the man originally identified as patient zero had been ill from December 8th, he actually was not sick until December 16th, according to Warabi. He claims he went and did research and interviews in Wuhan that contradicted the WHO report. But in May of 2021, Warabi was one of 18 scientists from around the world who signed a letter to the editor of Science Magazine that there was not enough evidence to decide whether a natural origin or an accidental laboratory leak caused the COVID-19 pandemic. In a New York Times article dated May 13, 2021, Warabi, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona, said he signed the new letter because the recent WHO report on the origins of the virus and its discussion spurred several of us to get in touch with each other and talk about the shared desire for dispassionate investigation of the origins of the virus. I certainly respect the opinions of others who may disagree with what we've said in the letter, but I felt I had no choice but to put my concerns out there, he said. First, it was naturally evolved and jumped from animal to human. Then man-made and leaked from a lab. Then naturally evolved and jumped from animal to human. And the icing on the cake is that the person who the CBS News article quoted as supporting Warabi's then latest theory... Peter Daszak, a disease expert who was on the WHO investigation team, said he was convinced by Warabi's analysis that December 8th date was a mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a tight circle of researchers who make their living off grants from guys like Tony Fauci, sometimes lucrative livings. It's not hard to imagine how they could be pressured to say or do whatever Fauci wanted because he had such power over who got what money. We've been fed so many lies about COVID, it's impossible to list them all. But let's say that nobody here is dishonest or unethical. I find that impossible to believe, but go with me here. That such renowned scientists flip-flop from one theory to another, almost whimsically, and hide behind thousands of pages of research and articles and studies, as well as arguments from authority, it seems to me that they may have evolved out of the same ooze 
of the codependent cesspool of corruption, which is Washington, D.C., right alongside politicians like Nancy Pelosi. That's our show for today. Please subscribe to the Unite American Show on Rumble or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to give us a like where you can. And please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpakita. That's at M-P-U-K-I-T-A. And please remember, unity without truth is conspiracy. Stay safe. I'll see you next week.